For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only, his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. As a Christian church, we believe fundamentally that God loves sinners, and that God loves sinners so much that he sent his son to come and to redeem us, to purchase us, to welcome us into his family, that his end game, as Paul says in Romans 15, is that we welcome each other as Christ has welcomed us. In order for us to become children of God, to be adopted into God's family, there has to be a purification. We are like Isaiah, who stands in the presence of God in Isaiah 6, and we become immediately aware of our uncleanness. And if you are not aware of your uncleanness today, I would challenge you, it's because you have not basked in the glory of true holiness. Because in the presence of holiness, you will be gripped with your own imperfection. You will be gripped with your own uncleanness. You will be gripped with your own unrighteousness. And it's in that moment that Isaiah cries out, and God provides cleansing. And it's that same prophet who says in Isaiah chapter 1, speaking for God, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be whiter than snow. And the theme of this series is on the purifying grace of God. Last week we talked or considered how the Scripture presents the people of God as those who have been cleansed, those who have been purified by grace, those who have experienced the washing of Jesus Christ, the washing of the Holy Spirit through the regeneration that He provides. And then I left us with the thought that that cleansing that we've experienced can shift, can twist, can be distorted, that we can become what I have called a purity culture. A purity culture is those who distance themselves from others, those who are trying to maintain their cleanness through what they touch, through what they do, through what they say, trying to maintain their cleanness as though they could, as though it's something that's up to them and not a work of grace. So I want to explore that some more today. And the lesson is in our pursuit of holiness, which I'm assuming is true of us, that we are pursuing the holiness with which we were redeemed, the grace with which we were redeemed, that we are pursuing the call of God to, as Lee just prayed, to walk worthy of that calling. But in our pursuit of holiness, we supplement or replace the cleansing grace of Jesus with boundaries it should be of purity that exclude what we deem unclean. Let me say it again. We supplement or replace the cleansing grace of Jesus with boundaries of purity that exclude what we deem unclean. For that, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9 and verse 9. 
As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Matthew was a Jewish man who was selling out his people by collecting taxes for the Romans. They allowed him to add a certain amount to put in his own pocket. These people typically extorted the very people they were collecting taxes from, and so he was despised by his own people for what he was doing. So Jesus says to Matthew, follow me, and he rose and followed him. This is verse 10. And Jesus reclined at the table in the house, and as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus is kind of blowing their mind right now. Because in their minds, these people are making him unclean. This is out of the boundary of the normal. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, or the so-called righteous, but sinners. As we begin this thought, I want to affirm something with you, and that is that uh, I want to answer this question, is the church called to protect and pursue moral purity or holiness? When we talk about loving other people, uh, we have to put it in the context of what love looks like and what it means to Uh, to live in a community of the church and how the church loves the way Jesus loves. Jesus never taught inclusion in the way that our world does. Um, He he, he taught the high standard of repentance, confession, and the need for his cleansing grace. Um, So are we called to protect and pursue moral purity or holiness in our lives? And I want to affirm that the answer to that is yes. Yes. Um, the church is called to holiness. Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, or 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 1, says that we are to bring holiness to, the, to completion in our lives in the fear of God. So what we are called to, what we are granted in the cleansing work of Christ, we're to live out now. We're to pursue holiness in the fear of the Lord. In fact, the whole letter of 1 John is written... Because there were people in the congregation, false teachers, who were saying, you don't need to obey God. You're cleansed now. You don't need to to pursue holiness. You don't need to try and live an obedient life. And John is writing not to say, well, if you're not obeying, you're not in the family. He's writing to say, no, these false teachers are wrong. These people are lying to you. They're distorting the truth. If you belong to Jesus the life that he's given you will result in obedience. Jesus himself says, if you love me, John 15, 10, what are you going to do? You're going to keep my commandments. So are we called to pursue and protect moral purity, holiness? Yes, we are. And I don't want you to hear anything else. Yes, we are. Uh, We are also called to correct ourselves. And this is how church functions. 
uh, we're called to admonish one another. When, when I fall into sin, when I engage in sinful behavior verbally or in action or, or in thought that I communicate, you're called to admonish me, and I'm called to admonish you. We're called, Paul says, to speak the truth in love to one another. Uh, in Colossians, he tells us to admonish one another. In Hebrews 10, we're called to admonish one another. This is corrective. This is the, the moment where we sit down and we have a come-to-Jesus meeting where we lovingly warn each other of sin patterns, of ways of living. We're called to do that. We're called to discipline, to what we call church discipline. When admonition fails, when people don't respond to admonition, we're then called to bring church discipline. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. He calls the church to clean out the leaven that's within. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn there, I'm going to spend just a moment in this text. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, his stepmother. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though I am absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that he may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are really unleavened, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The church is called to pursue purity in the lives of its fellow believers. And where that person refuses to respond to admonition or correction, the church has the obligation to say, listen, this isn't faithful to Christ. This is not Christian sin, but Christians repent. And if you're not repenting, then, then you have no part with us. There's a separation that happens, a discipline, with the hope that the person repents, with the hope that once excluded, they will mourn their own sin and come to see their own sin. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, be restored to the church because they've repented. This is what he says in Matthew 18. As we are to, if someone sins against you, you go talk to them. If they refuse to hear you, you, conf you bring someone else. If they refuse to hear them, then you bring it before the leadership of the church. And there's a confrontation that happens. There's an admonition. There's a Another come-to-Jesus meeting, a chance to repent. And if there's no repentance, then we exclude them. The church is called to pursue its purity within. And if we're going to be faithful, this is what we have to do. And then finally, the church is called to expel false teachers. This is, this is John's admonition in, in the letter. But Titus, Paul really says it. He talks about in chapter 1, the people who have snuck in who are unnerving whole families, they're upsetting people with their false teaching. And their false teaching centered upon what it means to live in grace. 
which I think is a great text. We studied it together, Titus. I think it's a great text to think about the teaching of grace in our culture today, in our evangelical churches, and ask the question, is the teaching that we're hearing faithful to the Scripture? Because Paul says grace, properly understood, properly experienced, actually leads us to live godly, self-controlled, upright lives. So if the grace you're hearing doesn't lead to that kind of change in you, then it's either not the grace of the Scripture or you're not actually living in the grace of God. So the church, Titus says very directly, these are false teachers that they're to be removed. In fact, these people who cause these divisions, whether it's in their teaching or in their behavior within the church, that they're to give, be given two warnings and then expelled. It doesn't even go through the church discipline. If there's a false teacher or a divider within the ranks, there's very little patience. There's direct rebuke and then nothing to do with them. So, is the church called to pursue and protect its purity, moral purity, holiness? The answer, in my opinion, according to the Scripture, has to be yes. It has to be yes. But something, uh, I'm sorry, let me, let me go to Richard Beck. This is from his book, Unclean. The critical issue isn't in the end if the church should or should not protect its moral and spiritual purity the critical issue concerns the fundamental stance towards the other, the erring brother, the stranger on the doorstep, the tax collectors and sinners. It seems clear that church discipline is needed to preserve the integrity of the community, but there is no way to faithfully implement Paul's directives until the matters of the heart are confronted. And this would be Galatians 6.1. If you see a brother overtaken in a fault, you who have the Spirit restore such a one in a spirit of meekness. Acts of charity can be dehumanizing. Church discipline can be dehumanizing. Calls for holiness can be dehumanizing. Uh, the outcome of these actions pivot off the status of the heart. And this is where, as a church that's pursuing holiness, as people who are pursuing holiness, something can happen in our hearts. What is that? How, uh, when does the desire for holiness shift to a purity culture? to a culture of separatism, to a culture of exclusion, to a culture that dehumanizes what we deem unclean. I want to look at several texts, but I want to, I'll make the assertion and I'll look at the text to kind of back it up. I think one of the, time, one of the things that prompts us or that, that kind of leads us down this path of not pursuing holiness by grace, but pursuing holiness a different way, is when holiness becomes an act of our flesh, our performance, something that we can do rather than by grace. Now, I think a great example of this, and I've, I've taken this from Tim Keller's recent book, The Prodigal Prophet, where he talks about the, the person of Jonah. In Jonah, he's running from God because God has told Jonah to go and preach to the Assyrians. So Jonah's running from God. He's on a ship. He's going as far away from the Assyrians as he can get because he doesn't want God to be merciful to the Assyrians. He's asleep in the boat. A storm comes. Everyone's panicking. They're throwing over the cargo. They're just trying to save their lives. They, they find Jonah, and everyone's praying to their gods, and they find Jonah asleep, and they say, dude, why are you sleeping? They didn't say dude. That's paraphrased. You know, why are you sleeping? 
And he says, you know, I don't think he says anything. They say, uh, why aren't you calling out to your God? And so they draw lots. They, they pick straws. Jonah gets the short straw. He's outed. And they say, who are you? Where do you come from? Who are your people? What's your mission? What are you here to do? Jonah leads off and he says, I'm a Hebrew. And what's fascinating is what he says next. He says, I'm a Hebrew and I fear God. What? Jonah's running from God. Apparently he didn't fear him very much. So not only does he lead with his racial identity, but then he leads with his performance, his relationship with God. I fear him. You see this in, uh, in Romans 2 as Paul goes after the, the Jewish people who are standing in their self-righteousness, Jewish Christians who stand up and say, hey, you know, yes, Gentiles can be part of the faith, but we're better off because we've, we've had this covenant history with God. We have the laws of God. We have the teachings of God. We, we've been circumcised, which is a sign of cleansing by the removal of the flesh. And Paul goes after that. And he says, first of all, cleanliness, circumcision, is not an outward thing. It's an inward thing. But they believed it was an outward thing. It was an act. It was a performance. It was something that they could do. And how does Paul zero in? He zeroes in and says there are none righteous. So this act of, I'm, look what I'm doing. I'm making myself clean. Look how I'm serving God. Look what I'm doing for God. Sacrifice, you could say, is challenged by the reality of our sinfulness. Another instance is in Matthew 12. Jesus is going through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And this is a fascinating story to me. He's going through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck the grain and the ears to eat it, ears of grain. When the Pharisees saw it, they said, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David said when, he's, when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and, the bread, and ate the bread of the presence, or the bread that was before the presence of God, which is not lawful for him to eat? Who were with him, but only for the priests to eat. Or have you not read in the law how the, on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? This was the fundamental issue as they thought, as long as I keep all these rules for the Sabbath, I'm clean. And this brings us to this idea that, if, that, that Paul brought out in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, if we've begun in the Spirit, if we've been brought into the family of the God by the Spirit, how do we think that we're going to somehow bring ourselves to completion through our flesh? As though somehow what we're going to do is actually going to make us clean and make us holy. That belief is fundamentally flawed. It's, I can't make myself holy. I can't make myself acceptable to God. But when my performance becomes the thing that I say, look, look what I've done. Look how clean and holy and righteous I am. I'm pursuing holiness as an act of the flesh rather than by the grace of God.
holiness, purity, is something he does for me and in me. And then when holiness is rooted in traditions rather than grace, I think probably the best of all the examples uh, in our in the list up there is Matthew 15. So turn, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew 15. This is another example of trying to be holy through what you do, but Jesus speaks into the issue a little bit more fully. The Pharisees and the scribes come to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now this was, this was not what you tell your kids, Okay. Go in and wash your hands before you eat because the truth is you really don't know what's on their hands. Right? They've been out playing in the creek. They've been picking up worms, sticking them in weird places, coming out their nose, coming out their... I've heard some stories. Okay? And, and you're worried about the germs on their hands. When we get home from school, like when my kids do, they get off the bus, and the first thing we do, and maybe I'm a germaphobe, I, you can correct me if I'm wrong. First thing I do is I hit him with a shot of antibacterial gel. All right, here you go. My son calls it hanitizer. I love that. Okay, give me some hanitizer. So I squirt him with hanitizer, and then we walk inside. First thing, wash your hands. And then I say, "Did you use soap?" And they say, sure. And when they were little, they used to hold up their hands so I could smell it. And at least it smelled like they used soap, right? Whether they actually scrubbed their hands or not. Okay, so this is a ceremonial cleansing. Okay, what, what's happening in the Bible is not, I actually have been doing yucky things with my hands and I need to clean them. This is the ceremonial cleansing before the meal to symbolize their purity and before they eat pure food because there were a lot of dietary restrictions. For they do not wash their hands. And he answered them, this is verse 3, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Notice that. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Then he gives them a way that they have broken the commandment of God for their tradition. For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever uh, reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what uh, you would have gained from me has been given to to God... He need not honor his father. So if you've given away sustenance that your family needs to the Lord, then you're no longer responsible. These were their little loopholes that they had with the law. He, did not, he, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines... The commandments of men. So when holiness becomes rooted in my traditions, and it could be the traditions of the church, this is how we've always done it. Right? And so now that's our tradition, and that's what somehow that's what gives us a sense of wholeness, a sense of righteousness, a sense of holiness. It could be your own. It could be your own personal traditions, things that you've carried over from your family, or things that you've just kind of developed as you've gone along. My traditions are that I exercise every day, and somehow that makes me better than the people who don't. It can be your own traditions. 
It could be things that, that you've created. And I think that's really important. I think it's masterful of Jesus to say it in the term of traditions. Now, his audience immediately knew what he was talking about because there are traditions that have been handed down through generations in Judaism. There's the, 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 the writings of the Scripture. There's the commentaries on those writings. And then there's the traditions that have been handed down. And they have to keep all of that. And so they understood it in their context, but it really broadens. It broadens how we can think about the traditions that we create in order to feel righteous, in order to develop an identity of holiness based around what we have ourselves erected. And then Jesus speaks to them about the leaven of the Pharisees in chapter 16, verse 5. And his, his point is, this is the teaching that has influenced you. So when holiness becomes an act of the flesh, something I do rather than the work of grace, and when holiness is rooted in some kind of tradition I've created rather than in the grace of Jesus Christ, and then finally when holiness is determined by my distance from what is considered unclean rather than by grace. In other words, I'm clean because I'm separate. And I grew up in a separatist tradition a separatist religious tradition. If you didn't believe what we believed, we would not do church with you. We would not fellowship with you. If there was a, a prayer time in downtown Roswell, and it was there were Methodists there and, and, and Presbyterians there, I was a Baptist at the time, there were these people, we wouldn't participate because we were separatists. Somehow being separate from those who didn't hold to our same doctrines that, that weren't essential doctrines, fundamental doctrines, key doctrines, but were kind of secondary doctrines, we wouldn't, we wouldn't fellowship with them. But it, it extended beyond that. There were things you could do that would make you unclean. Things within society, activities, cultural things. Celebrating Christmas. Now, my tradition didn't have any problem with celebrating Christmas, but I can't tell you how many times I've gotten letters from people who think we shouldn't have Christmas trees up and wreaths, and we shouldn't have Christmas because it's a pagan holiday, or it comes from, they, they would argue, pagan roots, or Easter. And so we create distance, but we do this not just with our church. We do this individually. We do this with people. We deem people unclean because of a certain sin in their lives. People who have had an abortion. People who have gotten pregnant out of wedlock. People who have committed sins that somehow, we, we know they're wrong, we know what the Scripture says, but somehow we can't fellowship with them, embrace them, and show them the love of God because they're unclean. This is what's happening with the Pharisees. And what does Jesus say? The very physician who came to heal them, you're keeping them from, or trying to. You're trying to keep them from the person who can make them healthy. And so when our holiness is determined by our distance, how far away, and it, it gets, not only do we create distance, but then we compare with each other how far away we are from that person. You know, I'm, I'm this far away. Oh, yeah, well, I'm way over. I mean, it's like, come on. But these are the things that, that, that shift 
a culture that says we've been cleansed by grace to a culture that says we're cleansed because of what we do. We're cleansed because of the traditions that we hold to. And we're cleansed because we have separated ourselves from what we deem unclean. A powerful passage on this is Luke chapter 7, 36 through 40. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city was a sinner, probably a very immoral woman. When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For he's a sinner, for she is a sinner. So it's, it's who she is, it's what she's done, and it's that she's touching him. And she's a sinner. And Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He says, say it, teacher. And then he gives this story of a moneylender who had two debtors. One was forgiven a huge debt. One was forgiven a small debt. Which one loves the most? And the answer is the one forgiven a large debt. This is from, uh, I think it's Wolf. This is from Miroslav Wolf in his book, Embrace, uh, Exclusion and Embrace. He says, in a profound reading of the Gospels, in Thus Spoke, I'm not going to try and say that, uh, Nietzsche underscored the connection between the self-perceived goodness of Jesus' enemies, the self-perceived goodness of Jesus' enemies and their pursuit of his death. In other words, they thought they were doing the Lord's work by chasing Jesus. Crucifixion was a deed of the good and the just, not of the wicked, as we might have thought. The good and the just could not understand Jesus because their spirit, here's the key thing, their spirit was imprisoned in their good conscience. Their spirit was imprisoned in their good conscience. Look how good I am. I've kept my tradition. I've kept my distance. I've sacrificed and worked hard to be holy. Their spirit was imprisoned in their, only, in their good conscience, and they crucified him because they construed as evil his rejection of their notions of good. The good and the just, insists Nietzsche, have to crucify the one who deserves an alternative, or devises an alternative virtue because they already possess the knowledge of the good. Exclusion can be as much a sin of a good conscience as it is of an evil heart. I'm going to say that again. Exclusion can be as much a sin of a good conscience as it is of an evil heart. So what are the signs that this shift has happened? How do we know when this is going on in our midst and in our hearts? A couple things that, that I've read, I've learned, and that I've kind of picked up on my own. Number one, an identity that's rooted in my sacrifice and my service. If you talk about who you are and what you've done for God, 
then you're building an identity around your sacrifice and your service. And this is where Jesus would say specifically, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. But we can, we can define ourselves by what we do for God, by how we have resisted certain things or not engaged in certain things in the culture or how we have somehow set ourselves apart. And the issue is not if I've set myself apart, but that God has set me apart. The issue is not how clean I've made myself, but how clean God has made me. It's purity by grace. And any time we stray from that, we start to build our sense of self around our religion, around our faithfulness, around our love for God. This is exactly what Jonah did. Jonah, who are you? I'm a Hebrew, that makes me special, and I fear the Lord, that makes me even more special. This is who I am. And there's a study question from that book that I'd really encourage you uh, to go through. So an identity rooted in my sacrifice and my service, how we think about ourselves in in the kingdom of God and how we build our identity. A fundamental belief in my goodness, uh, this sense that I'm right, that I have a clean conscience because I had my devotions every day this week, because I've spent time in prayer, because I haven't hung out with certain people, because I haven't watched certain TV. I mean, look at my life. I'm a good person. And, and when we experience grace, right, we, we start out with the cleansing grace of Jesus it's refreshing. It's, it's wonderful. We have been purified. We have been renewed. This is, a, this is a gift. And then something in us says, but now I've got to perf- be perfected by my flesh. And in that perfection, we start to, to think, I'm in a good place. I'm in a good place. I'm a good person. I'm doing it right. It's the result of clean living, you know, whatever the result is. Um, If you can't put yourself in the other person's shoes, if you can't step out of that, um, then we start to exclude. So fundamental belief in my goodness. The creation of sociomoral boundaries of exclusion. This is where we start to create traditions that if you're not a part of it, if you wear different clothes, that was a big one in my tradition growing up. If If you didn't follow the clothing standards that were unspoken because no one wanted to lay down legalistic laws. But man, if you wore something that wasn't within that, that boundary, you were something was wrong with you. You were excluded. You were not pure. Or if you went to a movie, you were not pure. We create these boundaries of exclusion. They don't have to be religious. We create boundaries in our social class here in East Cobb. We create boundaries in, our, in our, uh, our moral class, if you will. We create boundaries that, you know, are divorced people allowed within the church. Are unwed mothers allowed within the church? Are people who struggle with sexual sins allowed within the church? We create boundaries personal ones too, based on our own performance at home, our own performance in our jobs, our performance in our yards, our performance, you name it. And somehow we start to look down on people. Somehow we start to categorize and say, you're outside the boundary. That's my boundary, 
but somehow I feel good about my boundary and I've built my identity around my boundary. Jesus is functioning totally different than that, isn't he, in the text? And so then we exclude. Um, We exclude what threatens our purity as if our purity could be threatened by someone else. Our purity is secured by the grace of Jesus. But we, we separate. I think it's really interesting in the, in the Corinthian text. Paul says they were overlooking horrible sin in their midst as a church. But they were meeting other criteria as a church. The boundaries that they had set, they were feeling really good about themselves. Look at how much we've sacrificed. This is a wealthy church. They're a giving church. They're, and and they, they can look at themselves and say, we're being faithful. And Paul says, well, how can you claim that and feel so good about yourself when there's a man with his stepmother? That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. But that's what happens is we ignore, we ignore the boundaries that God has set up because we've got our own. And so we start excluding and this, this very much was in the Corinthian church as they created divisions within that separated groups uh, within the church, especially in the, you think about the passages in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 where he talks about the different parts of the body and how they were creating division in the gifts of people in the church. What do we do? We other people. We start to dehumanize them. People caught in sexual sin are somehow other than, different than us, less than human, less than image bearers of God. And we can't embrace them as image bearers because they're other, they're outside the pale. Then we demonize them. We turn them into monsters. We turn them into the reason for societal ills we turn them into the reason for uh, economic failure economic struggle i've read cases where people have demonized a segment of the population because uh and, and blamed them for natural disasters that natural disaster happened because of this group of people and then we scapegoat them better to get rid of them better to get rid of them and so we sacrifice the person scapegoating has a very old testament image where two goats were brought before one was slaughtered the guilt of the sinner was placed on the other and he was turned loose into the wilderness to die outside the camp outside the holy community carrying the sin of the guilty with him and somehow we do that to people And then there's permanence that sets in. What you've declared unclean cannot be made clean. Guys, we do this in the holidays with family members. People that we don't get along with, somehow we've diminished who they are. Brothers and sisters who have had problems in their lives and somehow they're less than us. And so we demonize them. And that makes us feel more righteous. And then we scapegoat them. And they can't ever get out of this because there's a psychological element of permanence that sets in. This is what Germany did. 
And Beck goes through these things and applies it to how Germany approached the Jewish question. There's more, but these are the, these are the elements. We do this. When we start thinking our purity, our righteousness, our holiness is something that we can do through our traditions and our distance from what is unholy. Holiness is a work of grace. So how does Jesus speak into this purity culture? But when he heard it, he said to those who are well, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your work of grace in our lives. Humble us as we realize that our holiness, our standing, our our cleansing is your work. The ability to obey and walk faithfully with you is your work. Help us to learn to embrace sinners the way that Jesus did as we consider that next week. Amen.